Gina Gershon is quantifiably a musician. She has played Jews Harp on songs by Scissor Sister, Paul Simon, and Herbie Hancock. However, she is better known as an actress for roles including Showgirls, Face Off, Rescue Me, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. A lesser member credit is arguably her most consequential role, her roundabout trip through the spirit realm reshaped music history. If you somehow do not remember her 2008 appearance on the acclaimed program Celebrity Ghost Stories, here's an outline. As a college student, Gershon lived in a dorm built on the hotel where a famed playwright Eugene O'Neill passed away. After a few drinks one night, she stumbled through the hotel's corridors. In a drunken haze, she came across a closed-off ballroom filled with vaporous men and women in high fashion. When she sobered up the next morning, she never found the ballroom again. A scene right out of The Shining. Her second encounter happened when she stayed overnight in her RA's room. As a couple slept, a milky white girl hovered over them. In the morning, she asked the RA if he had had any similar experiences. The whole semester, he felt someone stroking him as he slept. No cause was ever identified. Ooh, spooky. Celebrity Ghost Stories cast a young actress, Lena Morgana, to recreate Gershon's encounters. The role of the awestruck freshman remains Morgana's only ever film credit. Coincidentally, the play A Woman Haunted by Ghosts, the show hired a ghost. By the taping's air, Morgana was dead. The 19-year-old expiring actress had jumped off the roof of a Staten Island hotel. Depressed over a struggling career, she committed suicide. She never got to see how her art rippled through pop culture. In 2007, a year before her appearance in Celebrity Ghost Stories, Magana was just an independent songwriter. Around the same time producer Rob Fusari discovered her, he signed another singer, Stephanie Germanata. Fusari's previous success with big names like Destiny's Child, Will Smith, and Beyonce suggested he could turn the two new musicians into stars. Together, the three wrote and produced 12 tracks for Magana. The song you heard in the beginning, Wonderland, remains the only single Magana ever released in her lifetime. Germanata's backup vocals can be heard in the mix. It was the last time Morgana upstaged Germanata. Following the recording session, Germanata dramatically changed her stage presence, from a burnet strumming an acoustic guitar to a flashy dance pop blonde. Fusari noted that the new look was based on Morgana's stagecraft. In publicity stills for her debut record, Morgana wore outlandish wigs, tight lingerie, and platform shoes. Germanata recycled all these items in her performances. Upon seeing Germanata's new outfit, Lena's former boyfriend said, It was the same style, the same look, the same music, the same voice, the same jawline. The way they expressed themselves, it was so shocking, it was like looking at a ghost. That last line was oddly prescient. In the summer of 2007, the two artists' paths diverged drastically. Interscope Records signed Germanata on the strength of her new stage persona. A month after Morgana died, mainstream audiences were shouting for Germanata's new moniker. Released under the stage name Lady Gaga, Germanata's debut album The Fame was a blockbuster. Morgana's imagery found new life after her fall. A star was born, but another had to die. Hi, I'm Jeff, and with me is the original Ghostbuster, Nate. This week on Off Key, we're going to honor your requests. We have noticed that whenever our show plays, we always hear booing. 
We figured that meant y'all wanted an episode about ghosts. Today we are going to discuss how messengers from the spirit realm inspire legendary musicians. For a change of pace, I'm going to jump into Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine and head to the beginning of the 20th century to explore the life of a classical music composer who was a very odd man with some bizarre ideas and music that echoed those ideas. While there are any number of classical music composers with peccadillos, there is only one I know of who thought that he was God, but that the playing of one of his compositions would bring about the apocalypse. Here is Act 1, This Is Zit. Alexander Scriabin was born in Moscow on Christmas Day in 1872. Young Alexander's father was mostly absent in diplomatic postings, so the boy was raised in the household of his grandmother, his great-aunt, and his father's unmarried sister. The aunt, an amateur pianist, nurtured Scriabin's creativity. Even without formal training, he could play complex tunes on the piano by ear. At age seven, he constructed ten toy pianos with strings, sounding boards, working pedals, and moving keys. Scriabin attended the Cadet Chorus School and had a difficult time with hazing and bullying until his skill at the piano made him indispensable at social events. He began composing and began to take formal music lessons during the summers. However, his right hand was susceptible to strain after he injured it in 1891. He developed an unusually strong and independent left-hand technique as a result and wrote music for the left hand alone. And despite his particular small hands, he gained a reputation as a gifted pianist. In 1892, at the age of 20, he wrote his first significant work, his Piano Sonata No. 1 in F minor. Scriabin was just five foot tall. Despite his frailty, he was egocentric and had an extremely abrasive and narcissistic personality and an uncanny knack for making enemies. He showed some mental instability in early stages of life and eventually believed that the world could only be saved through his art. He had vivid hallucinations and saw the end of the world culminating in a mass orgy. At times he thought he was God. Being born on Christmas Day reinforced that delusion. And once he tried to walk on water on Lake Geneva and preached to the fishermen. How'd that go for him? He was all wet when he preached to him because it didn't work. Generally, his music career can be divided into three periods. Produced from the 1880s when he was a teenager to 1903 after he completed his second symphony. His early romantic work influenced by Chopin and Robert Schumann. A mid-period from 1903 to 1907 when his work was beginning to get more atonal and dissident. And eight years before his death when his somewhat challenging music became very controversial using unusual textures and harmonies. In his later years, Scriabin became completely wacky. And that's a, a psych term. Uh, he used to stand on chairs and give talks about his dreams. People used to say he could walk as if he was flying. He would hop, race, skip, and jump his way from point A to point B. He carried out flying experiments with his wife, attempting to transport his body through the air. Now, can't literally anybody do that? Uh, probably. I don't think I could, but uh, more agile people. But I don't really think that counts as flying. Scriabin also subscribed to an occultist religious movement called Theosophy which holds that there is an ancient and secretive brotherhood of spiritual masters called Mahatmas, unlike the rice that we buy, who have a great wisdom and spiritual powers and who are centered in Tibet. Theosophy was established in the United States during the late 19th century. It was founded primarily by the Russian immigrant Helena Blavatsky 
and draws its teaching predominantly from Blavatsky's writings. Religious scholars categorized it as a new religious movement that drew upon Asian religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. But Theosophy's founder, Blavatsky, insisted that it was not a religion. That may be because Blavatsky was also a celebrated spiritualist, hosting events where the dead were able to communicate with the living. However, her detractors claimed Blavatsky was a charlatan who faked paranormal phenomena. Scriabin composed ten piano sonatas, several of which have theosophical subtext. The fourth sonata is about flight toward a star, as in the experience of astral projection. The seventh, subtitled White Mass, is about the mystical forces unleashed in a magical ceremony, and the ninth, Black Mass, is about purging the corresponding dark forces. The eighth sonata uses five musical fragments to represent the constant interplay of the elements, earth, water, air, fire, and as he called it, the mystical ether. I'll just stick with earth, wind, and fire. At the time of his death in 1915, Scriabin was working on his most ambitious composition, The Mysterium. His goal was no less than the spiritual growth and even enlightenment of the audience in a performance that would take place for seven days. Scriabin attended the grand premiere performance of Mysterium to be in the foothills of the Himalayas. It would be followed by the end of the world and the replacement of the human race with what he called nobler beings. He wanted his potential masterpiece to feature an orchestra, a large mixed choir, an instrument with visual effects, dancers, a procession, incense, and rhythmic textual articulation. He also determined that giant bells suspended from the clouds would summon people from across the globe to the site of the performance. Sadly, he never completed the piece. Or better, because there was no apocalypse. Just as he was writing texts about death, death came for him. Scriabin was in London when he became ill. It began with a pimple on his upper lip under his mustache. The pimple was infected with Staphylococcus blood poisoning. When Alexander Scriabin died on Easter Sunday in 1915, nobody could have been more surprised than he was. Mere death was not part of his life plan. During his last decade, he had been envisioning something far more apocalyptic, whereby the whole of humanity, intoxicated by his music and mesmerized by his godlike magnetism and omnipotence, would join him in the mysterium an act of ecstatic transcendence to a higher plane of existence. Instead, no giant bells were ever suspended from clouds, and he missed out on the end of the world orgy. You're listening to WHM Charleston, 96.3 Ohm Radio. All right, Dad, cool stuff. He might not have been right about being a god, but born on Christmas, died on Easter. That's pretty close. Yeah, that might have been part of the reason why he thought that way. Well, no, the Easter part wouldn't have worked because he was dead at that time. Now time for my act. Act two. The world inherited the meek. Do you recall what was revealed today? We've all had our day ruined by stinky underwear. Only one pair scarred a generation. On February 3rd, 1959, Buddy Holly, Richard Valens, and the Big Bopper chartered a plane to fly to a nearby laundromat. Holly needed to make a run on fresh underwear. Shortly after takeoff, the plane crashed, killing the passengers and the pilot on board. In his 1971 hit, American Pie, Don McLean referred to this tragedy as The Day the Music Died. McLean's off-repeated line is better poetry than history. The physical deaths of the artists did not kill their music. 
all three acts wrote songs that other musicians later took to number one. Richie Valens had the most traditional path to posthumous fame. In 1988, Chicano rockers Los Lobos covered Valens' signature song, La Bamba, for the biographical movie of the same name. Bolstered by the soundtrack sales, the revised Mexican folk standard remains the only all-Spanish number one hit in Billboard history. The Big Bopper had a sad return to the hit parade. Under his real name, J.P. Richardson, Richardson started working behind the scenes. Shortly before his death, he wrote a song about a doomed Native American couple who chooses a relationship over life. Friend Johnny Preston recorded his own take on the story. Country giant in the making, George Jones and Richardson were recruited to imitate the faux tribal war cries. The racial caricature inspired Blue Swede's famed Ooga Chaka chant in their own number one hit, Hooked on a Feeling. Released after the fatal crash, Running Bear was the first time a dead musician's vocals taught the charts. I just wish they were saying anything else. In the six decades since Running Bear, only eight musicians have matched that dubious honor. The other members of this unenvied club are Otis Redding, I'm sitting on a dock of a bay, wasting time. Janis Joplin. Jim Croce. If I could save time in a bottle. John Lennon. It'll be just like starting over. The Notorious B.I.G. Soldier Slim. Slow motion for me. Slow motion for me. Slow motion for me. Moving slow motion for me. Static Major. And XXS Tentacion. I'm sad and I'm sad and With the exception of Jim Croce and John Lennon, none of those artists got to experience singing number one hit in their lifetime. Ever the trailblazer, Buddy Holly had the strangest return to the top. He had tangential hits with early 60s crooner Bobby V. V rose to stardom as a last-minute concert placement after Holly died. The irrepressible teeny bopper scored a string of modest hits, but more importantly gave Bob Dylan his first big break. He was the first person to hire Bob Dylan. Dylan played guitar in his band. V's sole number one hit was Carole King penned Take Good Care of My Baby a Liverpoolian band who took their name as a nod to Buddy Holly's backing band, The Crickets, covered Take Good Care of My Baby on the demo they shipped to record labels around England. Take good care of my baby Now don't you ever make her cry One of the producers who rejected that tape was Joe Meek. The band he dismissed, The Beatles, reshapes music history in a few ways. However, one feat they are often erroneously credited with is launching the British invasion. Meek and his group, the Tornadoes, were the first British rock stars to land in America. A mix of superstition and scientific wonder revolutionized the musical landscape, but sadly left a few ghosts of its own. Robert George Meek was born a regret. His mother always wanted a daughter. When genetics did not match her desire, 
She just pretended they did. For the first four years of his life, Robert was raised in girls' clothing as Roberta. Peers bullied and beat up their already insecure child. The torment instilled a hair-trigger temper. Ostracized from his classmates, he retreated into electronics. A child prodigy, he experimented with radios and old circuit boards. He applied his technological knowledge as a radio operator for the Royal Air Force. Military service catalyzed a growing fascination with space. Meek found comfort in the cosmos, an eternal landscape of isolation and radio waves. After his military service, Meek became a recording engineer for London Studios. There, he adopted the name Joe Meek. Backed by the inventor of rubber duckies and artificial Christmas trees, Major Wilford Banks supplied the funds for Joe to release Triumph Records. Triumph did not live up to his name. The label folded in a few months, but he started again on a new label. In 1960, Joe Meek ran the first independent recording studio in English history. Ran out of his apartment, 304 Harley Road was an empire above a handbag shop. The cramped quarters barely had enough room for a studio. Drums were stuck in the fireplace, guitars jammed in the bathroom, sometimes playing directly into the toilet bowl to add echo. Drums were filled with gravel, or smacked with a wooden plank on a spring to give reverb. His production was as amateurish as it was inventive. The sonic playground pioneered techniques later cited by garage rock, punk, and grunge artists. His innovative trials with overdubbing and tape loops were not seen until the rise of dub, hip-hop, and electronica decades later. No record better epitomizes Meek's dual technological creativity and personal eccentricities than the evocative 1961 hit, Johnny Remember Me. Well, it's hard to believe, I know, but I hear her singing in the sign of the wind Blowing in the treetops way above me Sung by the then-famous British actor John Lennon, Johnny Remember Me is the ultimate display of teenage melodrama. The droning ballad describes a young lover who dates the ghost of his dead girlfriend. The old advice is that authors need to write what they know, and if the team behind the song knew one thing, it was communicating with ghosts. Meek was a passionate follower of the occult. His love of space fostered a belief in other worlds. Convinced he had psychic powers, he strove towards the future. The foresight that made him a visionary unraveled him. One time, he ran to his friend Buddy Holly in a panic. He had a premonition that Holly would die in a plane crash on February 3rd, 1958. February 3rd came and went without incident. Holly dismissed Meek as a bit of a kook, but carried on. One year later, February 3rd, 1959, earned its title as the day the music died. Meek never forgave himself for getting one small detail wrong. The bespectacled songsmiths haunted Meek in his dreams. He dedicated his energy to redeeming Holly's unfinished life, and giving Holly one last hint. In a seance, Meek and songwriter Jeff Goddard summoned Holly's spirits. Supposedly, Buddy Holly's ghost guided her hands over the Ouija board. By the time the session was over, they had a sketch of a song. Meek asked the Phantom one last question. How high would the song get on the charts? Their hands pushed to the number one. The ghost was right. The song's smash success made Meek a star overnight. Meek's morbid curiosity spilled into other songs. He molded Screaming Lord Such into a cartoonish villain. Donning ripped leather skin costumes and white pancake makeup, such sing about monsters and serial killers. The campy theatrics of Meek-produced hits like Jack the Ripper or Dracula's Daughter inspired gothic pranksters like Alice Cooper or The Cramps. In 1961, he signed the Moon Trekkers to record Night of the Vampire on the condition they fired a lead singer. This is an odd request, considering that the song is an instrumental. 
and that the singer was a then undiscovered Rod Stewart. The closing sound effect of a creaking coffin was deemed too frightening that the song was banned from the BBC. If the radio did not like that gimmick, they would have hated Meek's real habit of breaking into cemeteries. Meek crept around graveyards with a tape recorder to capture the voice of yearning spirits. He once interviewed a cat, convinced that the meow was a human voice saying, help me. I've been quiet all this time because I know you like Joe Meek, and I've heard all this before from you, but I've never heard the cat one before, and that's, that's going a little too far. I love him. He's great. The occult gave way to belief in aliens. His radical 1960 album, I Hear a New World, is arguably the first concept album. The mostly instrumental record varies across genres to represent different extraterrestrial civilizations, like the Globots march while the Sorrows dance the twitchy surf rock. When humanity first reached toward the stars, Meek was eager to soundtrack that moment. He did it with his masterpiece. In 1962, America launched the first satellite for long-distance communication. Inspired by the craft of the same name, the Tornado's Telstar captured the starry-eyed optimism of that early space race. A beautiful miracle, Telstar will forever be one of my favorite songs. Telstar's legacy is much more than exciting curiosity. The song is a historical fulcrum, played on the clavulene, a precursor to the keyboard. Telstar was the first chart topper to feature electronic instruments. Meek was the world's first indie producer on number one hit. With Telstar, the Tornadoes became the first British rock band to climb the charts, setting the stage for the Beatles' takeover. Obsession in the right direction can make the world a better place. Far too often, it ends like the rest of Meek's story. Meek's propensity for hearing voices had tragic consequences. Already insecure for being a closeted gay man, Meek suffered from bipolar disorder, paranoia, and schizophrenia. Charles Blackwell, the arranger on Johnny Remember Me, said Joe Meek would spontaneously revert to Robert Meek. The alter ego was unpredictably violent. Robert once held a loaded gun to Jimi Hendrix experienced drummer Mitch Mitchell's head for an entire take. As his mental health worsened, Meek became a prisoner in his own studio. He became increasingly paranoid that record companies were conspiring to steal his ideas. He tore apart his equipment looking for listening devices. When he could not find any bugs, he was convinced that they read his mind or hired aliens to control his thoughts. His unstable mind was still capable of flashes of genius. The Honeycomb's 1964 hit, Have I to Write, is a fantastic song about romantic paralysis, be it by nerves or societal prejudice. It was Meek's last top ten hit in America. And as far as I know, it was the first big hit with a female drummer. Huh. In a life filled with risk-taking, Meek's final move is arguably his boldest. The last record the Tornadoes ever released was 1966's Do You Come Here Often. The Meek pen lyrics are the first time he openly accepted his sexuality. After a few minutes of chintzy organ noodling, the song breaks to depict a rather frank scene of gay cruising. Wow! These two coming now. What do you think? Hmm. Mine's alright, but I don't like the look of yours. 
Three years earlier, Meek's career was upended when he was arrested for soliciting gay sex in a public restroom. The notorious gangsters, the Cray twins, blackmailed him in a time when England outlawed homosexuality. You know those twins? Yeah. They Cray Cray. <laughs> With Dewey coming often, he defied both the extortion and social norms. His artistic career finished with a type of daring imagination that made Meek a man to be celebrated. His personal life made him a man to be scorned. The Cray twins were the start of Meek's legal troubles. Financial struggle struck when French composer Jean Ludot sued Meek over plagiarism. The Telstar melody bears a passing resemblance to his song Les March des Austerlitz. The similar note structure was enough to issue an injunction. Meek was blocked from collecting royalties off his 5 million selling single. Seeing himself as either a victim of injustice or fraud, Meek's mind deteriorated. In 1967, Meek dashed into his friend's home wearing all black. He was claiming that he was possessed by the ghost of Buddy Holly. The next day, his landlady, Violet Sheraton, checked in on him for a noise disturbance. She wanted to make sure everyone was safe. Paranoid that she was there to steal his ideas, he shot and killed her. He then pulled a shotgun on himself. He died on February 3rd, the exact day he warned Buddy Holly about all those years earlier. Three weeks after his death, the plagiarism lawsuit was settled in his favor. One last gift from beyond the grave. Darkness overwhelmed Meek. Like a lone satellite in the night sky, Telstar's signal still blinks for anyone to detect. Future artists understood how music could walk forward with advancement. Giorgio Moroder used inhumane instruments to amplify human emotions. Meek's technical and occult influence radiated into the music of B-52s, Beck, FKO Twins, and Grimes. As an eternal inspiration for generations, Meek achieved the most elusive form of afterlife. Let's hear the man himself singing his achievement. Okay, Nate, great, great story, and I'm so happy you finally got to talk about Joe Meek and Telstar, so I don't have to hear about it anymore. That's our show for this week. Thank you. Uh, Nate, do you have something else to close us out with? For our last story, I wanted to put people's minds at ease. Critics could raise a point that it's impossible to be inspired by ghosts because ghosts do not exist, and that's a pretty slam-dunk argument there. To settle debate, let's close out talking about a place filled with actual ghosts. With apologies to Luigi for all his hard work, the Mushroom Kingdom is still overrun by phantoms. Boos, originally known as Boo Diddleys, have been a common enemy since Super Mario Bros. 3. The white spherical ghosts are not a particularly menacing threat. They merely float around with their mouths wide open. At the slightest eye contact, they cover their face in shyness. Not all the players who have encountered them have been as bashful. One player extended their musical legacy far beyond a pun off an old bluesman. Nintendo software has been a common target for piracy since the 1980s. Swapping code from official releases, hackers could design their own levels. Websites started cropping up that contorted the mechanics into whatever direction a programmer could want. One player took the limitless possibilities into an unconventional direction. As a pubescent teenage boy, his version messed video games and the only other thing on his mind. The video game's main character was modeled after Mario. There are a few notable differences. He did not have the trademark red hat, he had no mustache, and he was a giant penis. 
The main obstacle of the game was for the penis to avoid running into vagina ghost. The 12-year-old programmer spent hours drawing in every detail until his debauched vision was realized. Like any good game, no matter how perverted, there needs to be background music. Without it, <laughs> this would have been ridiculous. Tinkering around on his computer, the first beats the seventh grader ever wrote were to score his game. He perfected the skill over the next few years. And what legendary star began with such a weird origin? It's a he! Kanye! <laughs> Let's go before they come after us. On that funky note, so long and thanks, everybody. Kids see ghosts sometimes. Kids see ghosts sometimes. Kids see ghosts sometimes. Spirit. Spirit. Spirit.